Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. <clears throat> the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you, are, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Last Lord's Day, we considered Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews who came to Jesus by night in the aftermath of Christ cleansing the temple at Jerusalem. After that meeting, according to John, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. So Jesus went down from Jerusalem to the region around the Jordan River. That's where the baptisms took place. But nearer to the southern end of the Jordan where it spills into the Dead Sea. During that time, as both Jesus and John were in that same region and both were making disciples and baptizing their disciples, some people went to John the Baptist with a question about purification. Now, it may be linked to those big purification jugs in um, John 2, where Jesus changed the water to wine and rendered those stone jars kind of ineffective for the purification rite for which they were intended. But some people went to John the Baptist with questions about purification. And in the course of that conversation, they said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John's answer to these people, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
Jesus must become more, and I must become less. Something that all of us would do very well to remember. I think that's a good dynamic for living the Christian life. Jesus must always increase, and we must always decrease. But in John chapter 1, the Pharisees had sent men to John the Baptist specifically asking him, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So it's clear that the very act of baptizing and drawing large numbers of disciples was something that the Pharisees associated with the coming of Messiah. And this is the background to John chapter 4, the first couple of verses, as we just walk through this chapter together. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. See, a day was coming when Jesus would face down the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the rulers of the people in Jerusalem. But this wasn't the day. So as he realizes they're about to come for him, kind of in the way that they came for John the Baptist, he decides to head back north into that region of Galilee where we first encountered him in John chapter 1, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, as the evangelist named it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15. But to get from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, in verse 4 of John 4, the evangelist wrote, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, the thing is, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. Certainly, it was the shortest route. If you were going to try to go directly from the region of Judea down by the Jordan River up to Galilee, you would go through Samaria. But there were many Jews who didn't want even that much to do with the Samaritans. So what they would do is cross the Jordan River and go up the east side and then cross back into Galilee once they were north of the Samaritans' territory. So when John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, maybe it was because it was just the quickest route away from the Pharisees. It's clear he's not wanting to encounter them at this point in time. Or maybe it's because his father compelled him to take that road and to go through Samaria because there was somebody that Jesus needed to meet along the way. Probably some combination of the two. Regardless, as he traveled, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. In other words, it was noon high noon, the hottest part of the day. And in spite of that, while Jesus was resting there beside the well, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now of this encounter, James Montgomery Boyce wrote in his commentary on John, it is difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, whom we met in chapter 3, and the simple Samaritan woman. He was a Jew, she a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee, she belonged to no religious party. He was a politician, she had no status whatsoever. He was a scholar, 
she was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She has, is nameless in the gospel. He was a man. She is a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She, who had no reputation, came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking the woman. The woman was sought by Jesus. At least that's how it appears. Nicodemus had come to Jesus to sort of make contact. He didn't even come with questions the way that is often presented to us. This woman didn't come to Jesus at all. That wasn't her purpose here. She just came to the well in the middle of the day when she knew the well would not be busy in order to draw the water that she needed for herself and her household. Coming at that time of the day, she would not have expected to find anyone there at all, and most likely, finding someone there, she probably would have just ignored him, especially given that he was a Jew. But Jesus said, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. She might have actually passed his disciples on the road, and they probably just crossed as far to the side as they could to not have to pass too close to her. But having been addressed, this woman turned to Jesus and said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Now, it's just a straightforward, simple question. It's something that puzzles her. Because in the way that she has come to understand the world, this is not something that should be happening. We've already noted that some Jews would have passed miles and miles out just to avoid going through um, Samaria. And at the end of verse 9, we have that divinely inspired commentary, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she asks a simple question probably not even expecting an answer. As, as James Montgomery Boyce noted, she is not seeking Jesus here, not at all. She did not come to the well that day expecting to meet even a rabbi, never mind the savior of the world. But as he did with Nicodemus, and this is something that can inform us in these evangelistic conversations that we might find ourselves in, Jesus takes the conversation from the place where she started it, and he goes off in a completely different direction than what she would have ever imagined. He asks her for a drink of water. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And we know the story. We've heard this hundreds of times. But imagine if a total stranger said something like this to you in the context of a, a, a normal encounter. You walk into, you know, Wendy's and you ask for a bottle of water. And they give you a bottle of water, and then they say, but if you knew who you're talking to, you'd ask me, and I'd give you the... Or then you say to them, I'm sorry, if you knew who I am, you'd ask me, and I would give you living water. It's, it's a complete sort of reversal of how this conversation would ordinarily go. And it's the kind of thing that has to happen 
If we're ever going to get to the point where we can talk to our friends and our family members and maybe even strangers on occasion about the grace of God and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. She came to him, or she came to the well looking for water. Jesus sees the opportunity and he tells her, if you knew who I was, you would ask and he would give you living water. Now that phrase, living water, we have made much of it over the years, but it would not have been strange to anyone in that day. It's, it's, we would use in its place the expression running water or fresh water. And that's how she would have heard it. Jesus is saying, here's a well, and it has some water in the bottom of it. If you were to ask me, I would give you fresher water, as opposed to this water that seeps from the ground at the bottom of this dark well. Now, Jesus may have had more than this in mind. He may have been thinking of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where the word of the Lord came to the prophet, saying, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's a couple of other references in the Old Testament where living water takes on um, the connotation of, of salvation. But she wouldn't have been familiar with Jeremiah. The Samaritans had the Pentateuch, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but that's all. They did not acknowledge the prophets or the Psalms or any of the other books that were already part of the Old Testament for the Jewish people. That's why Jesus will say a little bit later, we worship what we know, you worship what you don't know, because they didn't have these books. But he may be thinking of those references to living water. Her reply indicates that she didn't comprehend this at all. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She may actually have been mocking him. We don't get tone of voice in the written account. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Remember, she doesn't know who he is. He's just a stranger. He's just a Jewish man. To her, he's not even a rabbi. He's just this man sitting there next to the well. So when she says things like, are you greater than our father Jacob? Hear a little sarcasm in that, really? You don't even have anything to draw water from the well with. Where are you going to get living water, pal? Because she doesn't know who she's talking to. Then in reply, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And again, it's clear from the text, if we read it carefully, she didn't get it. If she had, if she understood, then she might have zoomed in on that last phrase about a spring of water welling up to eternal life, which seems like kind of a big deal. It's the big idea in that sentence. Instead, she says, and again, there may have been some mockery in her tone, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. See, she's focused on the here and now. She's focused on the world in which she lives. She's not thinking about spiritual realities in any way. She's just thinking, wouldn't it be nice 
if I didn't have to make this trip from town every day to draw water and then carry it all the way back to my house. By the way, I think her attitude reflects the way that many people see Jesus to this very day. Many people hear something about Jesus, something about God, and they think, wouldn't it be sweet? It would just be so awesome if the Son of God would just come alongside and solve all my problems for me. If Jesus would just do that, then I wouldn't have to and just fill in the blank. Whatever it is that is tedious or hurtful or frightening in this world and in your life, if Jesus would just fix that, then I wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. I wouldn't have to do it anymore. I wouldn't even have to think about it. But here Jesus is offering this woman the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. And we might not think of it that way because some of us have been Christians for a long time and we just think of, yeah, eternal life, that's something we have. But I mean, realistically speaking, if Jesus had come to this woman and said, on the one hand, you can have life, but on the other hand, I'll give you like everything or desired, then she's probably going to choose that. Because that's what people do, and that's what people do to this very day. He's offering her eternal life through faith in him, and she's still thinking about having to go to the well every day. She's still thinking about, well, yeah, eternal life, that just means more trips, right? I've got to go. If I live forever, how many times am I going to have to come to this stupid well? She's not thinking about the kingdom of God. And Jesus, knowing that she's still not getting the point, said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And again, there's lots that we could learn here. We just don't have the time about Jesus' method of evangelism. His original instruction, go call your husband and come here, would have been simple enough if Jesus didn't know the reality about this woman's life. But he knew it would be a flashpoint for her. And that's exactly why he went there. Go call your husband. Come here. Sounds easy, but he knows where she stands. He moves the discussion away from the ordinary, her thoughts of going back and forth from her home to the well, and he moves it really into the realm of morality and by extension into the realm of spirituality, and he doesn't do it in the most affirming way. When he says, go call your husband and come here, and she says, I I have no husband, he doesn't say, hmm, that's interesting. I bet you've been hurt a lot in the past, haven't you? She says, I have no husband. He says, yeah, well, that's the truth. You've got had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And perhaps taken aback, I wish we could see the look on her face, because remember, she does not know him. He's a stranger to her. And he says this, he speaks about her life in ways that he could not possibly know. And so she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And I love what she does here, 
Because again, this is something that happens. If you get into evangelistic conversations with people, this is going to happen to you. Jesus essentially just called her out on moral grounds. But she tries to shift the conversation away from that, away from herself. Verse 20, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's like those times when you're talking to people and they're starting to feel some conviction of sin and maybe some need for God's grace in their life and then all of a sudden they want to talk about, well, if God is really good and God is really God, then how come there's war and famine and all these things in the world? And they go off into, that's called a theodicy, by the way, and it's got nothing whatsoever to do with the conversation you've been having. It's just a deflection. It's a way of turning the conversation aside from the needs that they are experiencing in their own heart and turning it into something that's just really all but unanswerable, especially if you're talking to someone who just doesn't believe in God. Now, she brings up what would probably be an insoluble problem between a Samaritan and a Jew. They didn't have a lot of contact, never mind good theological discussions. So she goes back to her father, Jacob, as she mentioned a little bit earlier in the text, and she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And this seems like the sort of thing that they could wrangle over a little But Jesus' answer is very significant. He said to her, woman, remember that's a term of respect. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, before we move on into the part that's better known of this text, keep in mind she's talking geography and he's talking geography and a certain amount of theology. She's saying, this mountain or this mountain? And he's saying, well, it's not going to be either one of those. But understand, we worship what we know. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And of course, that last verse, verse 24, that's where we often put the exclamation point in John chapter 4. If you go to this chapter, you're going to get some sermons about evangelism. You're going to get a lot of sermons about worship that are built around verse 24. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth as if Jesus was primarily speaking directly to us in our day, in our context, and he was primarily addressing issues of worship practice. That's not what he was doing. He was speaking to this woman at Jacob's well in Samaria 2,000 years ago, and his primary concern was not for worship practices, This is not a go-to verse when we want to argue about, well, should we sing this kind of song, that kind of song? Should we have a liturgy, or should we just be free-form and open and do whatever we want? Oh, John said, we must worship in spirit and truth. He's not talking about that. Jesus is not concerned about geography. Both Samaria and Jerusalem 
within about 40 years were going to be completely destroyed and completely irrelevant. And it wasn't about the fact that the Jews had the truth that the Samaritans were lacking. The very oracles of God, as Paul called the law and the prophets in Romans chapter 3. He's talking about how we come to God through faith and where that faith must be placed. And her reply in verse 25 shows that she was listening better than we do, at least at times. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she picked up on half of what Jesus said. He said, the hour is coming. And she picked up on that, but she was still looking away from the moment that she was in where she was speaking to Jesus himself. She was looking away, maybe to Jerusalem, maybe wondering if he could persuade her that the Jewish way was the right way and she should start going down to Jerusalem to worship. Or she's looking away, certainly, to some future time. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. And in verse 26, Jesus just brings it all home to her, saying, I who speak to you am he. In other words, he's saying to this woman, he's not coming. He's here. Right here in front of you, speaking to you. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am everything that you associate with the coming Messiah, and I am sitting right here with you. The hour is coming and is now here. And that's why it's not about Samaria or Jerusalem. That's why it's not about the Samaritan Pentateuch or the Old Covenant scriptures apart from the new. That's why it's about spirit and truth because the hour was coming in that time frame, but it arrived when Jesus arrived. Now, just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. I've heard some sermons where they make quite a big deal about that. They marveled talking with a woman, but evidently they didn't marvel all that much because no one said, probably to her, what do you seek? Why are you talking to our rabbi? And to him, why are you talking with her? They just walk up, and they're kind of shocked by this, and so they stand and say nothing. And the woman's reaction to Jesus' declaration, I who speak to you am he, she said, I know that Messiah is coming. I know that the Christ is coming. And Jesus said, I who am speaking with you am he. Her reaction, so, or therefore, because she heard his declaration of identity, the woman left her water jar And she went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? By the way, we will discover in verse 39 that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. But please note that her testimony, because the the Greek word here that's translated testimony, it's not what we think of. If I were to randomly ask someone to just get up here and give your testimony, it would be a very uncomfortable moment for everyone, I'm sure. But most people would be thinking, oh, I've got to get up there and tell my story. 
I've got to talk about my faith journey and who I was before I came to Christ and how I came to Christ and how Christ has been at work. We think of that. But that's not what is meant here in John when it talks about her testimony. Testimony here is that, that Greek word for witness, testimony, and there's translated a couple of other different ways as well. And it's testimony like in a court of law. It's like standing up and raising your right hand, putting your other hand in the Bible and saying, I, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. She's not giving her testimony by telling the people in town her story. They already know her story. She's giving a testimony to the reality that that man sitting out there by the well right now, I think he might be the Christ. He might be the Messiah. He might be the one that we have been waiting for. So she didn't get all wrapped up into, yeah, let me tell you, I was so immoral when I was younger and all the things that I did. She just comes in and they know her. And she says, I think the Messiah is right out there, and they believe her enough that many of them decide to follow her out to the well to talk to this man. Giving a testimony can involve a certain amount of telling our story, but in reality, if we're pointing more to ourselves than we are to the Christ who saved us, then we're not giving a proper testimony because we are to testify of him. And in verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. See, our stories can be an instrumental part of the process. But when we have the privilege of leading someone or bringing someone to Christ, we don't bring them to salvation. We don't make them an offer and then try to close the deal by saying, hey, just, just pray the prayer and, and you'll be saved. We don't bring them to salvation. That is first, last, and always the task of the Holy Spirit. We bring them to Christ. We bring them to Christ, particularly in our day, through his word. And it's his word, ultimately, that is his power for salvation to everyone who believes. In fact, we cannot lead someone to salvation. As I said, it's just not our job. We point them to Jesus, and then we stand aside, and we let God do his sovereign, saving work. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Evidently, this propensity to take spiritual statements that Jesus makes and make them about physical, temporal things, because that's all we know, was just ubiquitous. It was everywhere, even then. He talks about living water, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and she can't see it. She can only think of the water in the well. He talks about having food to eat that, that the disciples don't know about, and they think, huh, I didn't notice that he was carrying a brown paper sack when we went into Samaria to buy things for him. Who gave him food? And we always do this. We think about earthly physical things. We get focused on the things around us and we do not see or seek the kingdom of God. 
But Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now hear this part, this next part. In the light of this statement, and also in the light of verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here. Because again, this is one of those texts that we've often just pulled out of context and used as kind of a missionary conference text, that sort of thing. But beginning in verse 35, Jesus said, Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. This is Jesus reiterating what he said to the woman. The hour is coming and is now here. He's saying the time is here and and the time is now. Just lift up your eyes. And again, he's speaking to the disciples. He's saying to them, hey, here we are in Samaria. Just lift up your eyes and take a look around. The fields are white for harvest. There are people who need to hear the word of God, who need to be called to salvation by faith in Christ. The fields are white, and already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together, for the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, the law and the prophets that pointed people to Christ, and you have entered into their labor. The reason I say this, to get away from this kind of missionary mentality, is that so many times it's been used in a way of like, oh, we go online and look at what's happening on the opposite side of the planet. The fields are white for harvest. Jesus wasn't telling his disciples, open your eyes, the the people in Great Britain and Gaul and those faraway provinces of the Roman Empire need missionaries. Please do something about it. He said, just take a look around. Where you live, where you are, your neighbors, the people that you interact with every day, the fields are white. The time is now, the place is here. In an old movie, It was called The Earthling. An old man, I think it was Jason Robards, it's been a long time since I saw it, said, I always made the mistake of thinking that today is some kind of a rehearsal for tomorrow. Don't ever do that. And we need to hear that exhortation as an echo of what this text is saying The woman at the well is looking away. She's looking away from herself. She's looking away from her life. She's looking away from the very moment in which she found herself, hoping that something's going to happen that's going to make life in the here and now better. And so she's only concerned with the here and now in the sense that it's not good enough and hopefully something's going to come along. Messiah's going to come and he's going to make this better. This was the disciples' hope, too. It was the hope of Israel. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the world, right? We sing it at Christmas time. They were looking away. They were looking for something other than, than what they had right there. Next year in Jerusalem, they used to say at the Passover feast, I think they still do, Christians say, come, Lord Jesus. The thing is, he already has 
The hour is coming and is now here. I who speak to you am he. And if the hour was now here 2,000 years ago, if the fields were white unto harvest 2,000 years ago, what does that say about today? They, the Samaritans 2,000 years ago, said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And if you are hearing his word today, then as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is no sense in which we should be thinking, well, I have time, I can wait. I can enjoy life a little bit, and then maybe someday, you know, when I'm old and there's no more fun to be have, I will turn to Christ. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. And in Romans 10, the word is near you. It's not out there somewhere, far away, long time away, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And the hour is here. The time has come. If you're hearing this here live or online in some form, hear his word, turn to him, trust in him. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Find salvation, life, and light in his name. And because I know that most of those who I'm speaking to this morning already know him as Lord and Savior, what does this say to us? Well, the hour is here. The time has come. Don't make the mistake of thinking that today is some kind of a rehearsal for tomorrow. After I've learned a little bit more, then I'll point my family or my friends or strangers to Jesus. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Go and confess Christ together with those ancient Samaritans, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, give us eyes to see the world around that doesn't need another social program but they need the gospel. They need the good news that Jesus Christ, your son, came to save sinners. Give us words to speak and a willingness to proclaim what we know, that he, your son, our savior, is the son of God, the Christ, the savior of the world. And Lord, send us to those people who will hear your word and for whom your word will be your power for salvation to believe and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.